Acts 28, so this is it. We've been doing Acts for almost a year, maybe, 11 months. Uh, wraps up today, doesn't have the big Hollywood ending the way that you would think, or the way that I would think. Uh, 30 years of history we've looked at from Acts 1 to now. It's, it's, it's only been 30 years. It has been 30 years. I don't know if that seems like a long time to you or not. Christianity begins with these 11 guys, and Jesus says, wait till you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth against 11 people. We have 120 men and women in the upper room in Jerusalem. Now we've got tens of thousands of believers all around the Roman Empire. We're looking at Paul, who, when this whole thing started, was one of the chief opponents of Christianity, is now uh, the number one promoter of it. So a lot has happened uh, over this time. We'll probably uh, do a recap next week. Most of you will probably be at the beach, so... Those of you who are here, we'll do a recap uh, and try to grab a few things out of Acts. But for today, um, just looking at this very last little section, Paul's been on a boat. He's headed to Rome. Massive storm blows them. They think off course. They can't navigate. There's no sun. There's no stars. They're taken on water. Things look very desperate. They shipwreck on the Malta, which is an island. If you've got a, a bulletin, the map's on the back. I know you can't read those uh, names of those cities up there. so small. They shipwreck on the Malta, which is an island. Turns out it's right on course for where they're trying to get to in Rome. Paul gets bitten by a snake. You remember that? By a viper. And everybody on the island thinks he must be a wicked person. The storm didn't get him, and so the snake does. Shakes the snake off into the fire. Doesn't have any ill effects from it. He heals the, the kind of the mayor of the city, and so everybody's opinions towards Paul change, and they, they take care of Paul and his companions uh, during the winter. It's three months, mid-November to mid-February when you can't travel. Paul and the guys from the boat, there's 275 other guys, they stay on Malta during that time. So pick up in verse 11, chapter 28. After three months, so that's that winter period, we put out to sea in a ship, that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse, stayed there three days. From there we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day the south wind came up, and on the following day we reached Petulio, or Petuli, something. I'm not sure how you say that. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. He's been... Five years, and that's all you get. And so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Apius and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. So Paul had his own house in Rome, but he was chained to a soldier. Uh, they would rotate every four hours. So Paul would constantly... Think about being handcuffed to somebody, probably a little more length in the chain than that, but that's the idea. There was a soldier who would have a cuff on his wrist, and he would cuff Paul as well. Verse 17, three days later, Paul called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said, My brothers, although I've done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. The Romans examined me and wanted to release me, because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I've asked to see you and talk with you. It's because of the hope of Israel that I'm bound with this chain. 
They replied, we've not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who've come from there have reported or said anything bad about you. We want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. So Paul's normal, uh, his MO when he gets to a new city is to go to a synagogue. He can't go to the synagogue because he has to stay in the house and he's chained to this soldier. But he has freedom to have people come to him. So he invites the Jewish leadership of Rome to come to him, and at least some of them do. And Paul doesn't know what they've heard about him. And so his ultimate goal is to share with them about Jesus, but he has to make sure that they're okay first. And so not knowing what they've heard about him, he starts by saying, I just want you all to know like, I'm, I'm one of y'all. Yes, I was arrested in Jerusalem, but it didn't come to anything. He's, he's very diplomatic in the way he talks about what happened to him in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital of Judaism. The, the head guys are all there. And so Paul wants to make sure that these Jews in Rome know that he doesn't have anything against the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. That they should not just dismiss Paul out of hand. They ought to give him a chance to share what he's bringing. Share this good news that he has. And he's, again, he's very diplomatic. He says the Jews handed him over to the Romans. And if you remember, that's not exactly how it happened. The Jews were about to tear him apart, is what it says in Acts, and the Roman soldiers rescued him from being killed. So not the Jews didn't really hand him over to the Romans at all. But again, he's being diplomatic. He doesn't want to say anything that's going to unnecessarily bias these guys against him. And he says that I'm only here to make a defense. I'm not here to bring any charges against our people. I'm not here to accuse anyone of anything. I'm just trying to defend myself. The Romans have already found I didn't do anything worthy of death. And I'm just, I, I, I appealed all the way up to Caesar because I want to make sure my name is clear. The Jews did not like that. And again, he doesn't say that they, 40 of them decided they weren't going to eat until they killed Paul. He leaves that detail out. He just says they objected. They objected to what I was doing. And so this was the course of action that I had to take. So for all of that, it's Paul just saying, I want y'all to give me a, a chance. And they say, we hadn't heard anything about you. We don't know. We, nobody from Jerusalem has come up to tell us anything. We hadn't gotten a letter. The guys that have come from there, they hadn't said anything about you. And so, but we have heard a lot about Christianity. We've heard a lot about this faith. People everywhere are talking about it. We are interested in that. And so uh, verse 23. So the Jews arranged to meet Paul on a certain day. They came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. So this sounds really harsh. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through the Isaiah, the prophet. Go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears. They've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Exclamation point. That's how it ends. Exclamation point. That doesn't really sound like an exclamation point to me. Maybe they'd have emojis. I don't know what it would be if that's what Luke used. Y'all can guess, all of you. What emojis would he have used? So is Luke's excited. 
the gospel's being preached unhindered. That is, the Romans aren't putting any obstacles in Paul's way. They're not letting him go, but they're not putting any obstacles in his way. And so for, for two years, he's under this, this house arrest. He does get released. That's not, in the, that's not here in Acts, obviously. But if you read 2 Timothy, it's the last letter Paul wrote. It talks about him traveling, and the travels don't fit with anything he's done up to this point. So most people say Paul was released. He traveled for a couple of more years. Then he got arrested again by Nero. So Nero's who he was appealing to here. This was kind of sane Nero, and Nero turns insane towards the end of his life. Um, and Paul gets rearrested by him, put in a much worse, really a dungeon, a much worse prison. He winds up getting beheaded in 64, 65 AD, somewhere in there. So three, a couple of years uh, after we see this. And so that's how Acts ends. It's Paul being able to preach. We say without hindrance, but he was chained, but there were no official um, limitations on what he could say. And we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of today and next week. So Paul has gathered these Jewish men and he's sharing with them. That was his, his whole goal. I just want to share with them about Jesus. They've heard about Christianity and I want to tell them who Jesus is, and he reasons with them, and he tries to persuade them from the Old Testament, and like in every place he goes, there's a little bit of success and a whole lot of resistance. Every place he goes, every synagogue he goes, he kind of bangs up against it. He's got a minority of Jews that agree, that say, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. The majority are, are uh, unconvinced, and, and many are even hostile to what Paul is doing, and it, it causes a lot of heartache for him. And so he closes with this statement. It's a prophecy from Isaiah. When we hear prophecy, a lot of times we think about predicting the future. That's not what this is. This is really, Paul is describing the situation. He's saying, this is what's going on. Right now, y'all have so, are so hard in your hearts. You're so resistant to the truth that I'm telling you. Then God's moving on, in a sense. He's moving on. The gospel is going to bear much fruit among the Gentiles. And we're all the beneficiaries of that. But that can, again, seem like a very harsh statement that Paul is saying, and I want you to hear the heart behind it. Um, Romans 9 through 11, Paul is really wrestling with the whole idea of why do Jews continue to reject Jesus? So if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah sent by the Jews God in accordance to the Jewish scriptures, why can't the Jewish people, like, why can't they, why do so many of them reject Jesus? Why can't they see from their own scriptures that God has sent them this Messiah who they've been wanting. And you can see there some of his statements in Romans. His heart is, is broken. He says, I'd trade places. I would be cut off from God if, it would, if, if, that, if that would allow more of my brothers and sisters to be brought into relationship with him. So don't hear him here being angry or self-righteous or judgmental. He is saying something strong, but he's saying it through Tears, And the issue is it's what Paul is trying to teach them about Jesus is just so counter to what they've been conditioned to believe. When they hear Messiah, they're thinking someone like King David, if you remember him from 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. They're thinking for a guy who can kill Goliath with a slingshot and who can lead the army out. And if you read through 1 and 2 Samuel, David's an incredible warrior. He, he doesn't lose. And he, he beats armies that are bigger, he beats armies that are better, and he, he is a, it's amazing. 
if you read his track record in terms of what he does with the military. And that's what they're thinking. That's, that's the Messiah. It's going to be somebody like that. It's going to be somebody who can lead our army and we can overthrow Rome. And when you're talking about the kingdom of God for our minds, that means it's our nation. It's Israel. And it means we're going to be the head and not the tail. That's a, a word back from Deuteronomy where God talks about his people. And he says, y'all be the head, not the tail. And that's what they say. We're going to be at the top of the pyramid. We're going to be up here in terms of we'll, we'll be uh, the, the superpower. And that's what they're thinking. And then when, when Paul is trying to say, hey, listen, Isaiah 53, it talks about the suffering servant. That's the Messiah. They're, they can't get it. And when he says this Messiah, he did win. He didn't defeat Rome, but he defeated sin and Satan. And they're going, well, that's, that doesn't compute for them. And the way he defeated those things was by dying on a cross. And they would say, well, our, the Old Testament, our Bible, it tells us that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So how can you say that's the Messiah, the Son of God, if he was crucified, which means he was cursed by God? Like that, None of it computes for them. What he's saying is so different from what they were expecting. They, they couldn't, most of them, they couldn't get their minds around it. They couldn't accept and again, it causes a lot of heartache for Paul. And again, you can read Romans 9, 10, and 11. There's some confusing things in that section. But in general, it's Paul wrestling with this idea of what about the Jews? And you can see here that's he's saying it's kind of your windows closed. Not finally and fully and completely. But the gospel is going to start going to Gentiles now. Uh, and really in a, in a, in a new and, and more... Um, powerful way and even in a primary way the gospel is going to be going to gentiles but again it can be harsh for some of us when we read that was not said with judgment and self-righteousness it was said with a broken heart and through tears a couple of things i want you thinking about just in terms of how this connects to your own life one that we we, we talk here sometimes about psalm 37 4 take delight in the lord or delight yourself in the lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart i see that playing out here with Paul in Rome in some ways that I want you to try to grab onto. So when we first hear about Paul wanting to go to Rome, it's in Acts 19.21, and Paul said he's decided, just like you decide, whatever. You decide what to wear, you decide what to eat for breakfast. He just said he made a decision, and he had this intention to go to Rome. It doesn't seem super spiritual. It doesn't seem like God spoke to him. It's just something that he wanted to do. And then when he talks about it two years later, which is three years prior to what we just read, when he's talking about visiting Rome, he writes a letter to the Roman church and he's talking about visiting them. And he says, I've been longing for many years. And so you have a decision that seems to become a desire. It's, it's growing in intensity in Paul. But both of those things seem to be rooted in Paul's heart. Again, it doesn't seem to be anything that God has put on him or is leading him to. It just seems to be what Paul wants to do. He made a decision to go to Rome. And after he made that decision in the two years between when he decided and when he wrote this letter, that decision had strengthened into a desire. But when you see um, towards the end of Acts, a couple of times where Paul is talking about going to Rome, the weight of heaven is behind it. There's a, one in Acts, I think it's 2311. He's in the barracks in Jerusalem. And it's, it's a difficult time for him. He just testified before the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling elders um, of Judaism. He probably knew some of those guys because he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So some of those guys were probably his acquaintances, if not his friends. And, and, and Luke says that things got so bad, the dispute got so bad that they literally were, were Paul was, they were afraid Paul was going to get torn apart. And so the Romans step in and save him. And he's in 
the barracks, which is kind of like military jail a little bit for where Paul was. He was in these barracks. They were just trying to keep him safe. And I think he's probably a bit depressed. And Jesus literally comes and stands next to him at night. That's what it says. Jesus stood next to him. It says, take courage. As you testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must. That's translated, so it is also necessary. It is necessary for you to testify about me in Rome. Then he's on the boat a couple of years later. He's on the ship and he's going towards Rome. And it looks like everything is going to be uh, fulfilled and completed. And there's this massive storm. Two weeks and they don't know where they are and their ship is taking on water. And, and an angel says, an angel of God stood beside Paul at night and says, don't worry about it. You're going to testify before Caesar. And I'm going to, God's given you all of these other men, all 275 men on this boat. So we see this idea of, in my mind, what I look at, if I just read straight forward, Paul makes a decision. The decision turns into a, turns into a desire. And then we see God get behind it. And I don't know how that works for you theologically. But that's what I see. A decision becomes a desire, and then God gets behind it. And what I think we see there, it's a fulfillment of Psalm 37.4. God is giving Paul the desire of his heart. His desire was to go to Rome. He wanted to visit Rome. And God says, okay, we can do that. And that, that furthers my purpose, too. Paul, what you want and what I want, those things, they line up. I can use that. I can use that desire of yours to further my kingdom. My desire, Acts 1.8, is for the gospel to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Rome is not the, end, the ends of the earth. It's the, the center of the world at that point. And he's saying, you want to visit there? That works for me too. That lines up with what I'm trying to do. Again, theologically, I don't know if you can kind of get your mind around that. that and I think God does the same thing for us. You're his son, many of you. You're his daughter, many of you. I think God looks at your heart and says, what's in there? What are the things you really want to see? Not just the superficial. What are the deep desires of your heart? And I think he's going, can I work with any of those? Are there things in your heart, deep desires in your heart, that as God fulfills those, because he's a good father and he wants to do that for you, also advance his purposes in the world? It's true that the more time you spend with somebody, the more your desires become theirs. A couple of years ago, I was with a, a guy... Uh, who had been widowed for about a year. He'd been married 25 or 30 years. And he was saying, he's like, I don't know if I like to canoe. And I said, what? And he said, well, we always canoed, me and my wife and our family. And I don't know if I canoed because I like to canoe or if I canoed because she did. So I'm trying to learn, I'm trying to figure myself out. I don't know if I like to go canoeing. He had spent so much time with his wife and he loved his wife so deeply, her desires became his. And he, he didn't... He wasn't getting drug along. He genuinely enjoyed it. He just couldn't remember the root of that desire. Was it in him or in her? And many of you, you, you know that. The more time you spend with someone that you love, their desires become yours, at least to some degree. Not all of them, but some of them. I was, when I was sitting up here, when y'all were taking communion, I was having my head down. I was looking at all the shoes that were going by. Some, some of y'all had a lot of shoes. Because the ones you're wearing today, you probably only wear like with one outfit, Right? I was looking at the guy's shoes versus the girl's shoes. I had lots of questions. How do you pick low versus high? Not like high top on your ankle, but heel. What's the decision point on that? Is it, at first I thought, oh, it's the people who wear pants are wearing low shoes. 
That's not true. People who are wearing pants are wearing high ones also, right? And then I thought, well, maybe is it the opposite? There are also you wear high shoes if you're wearing a skirt or a dress, but there are also plenty of low shoes, sandals with that. It made me very thankful to be a boy <laughs> and to have three pairs of shoes. Amen. So anyway, that was a tangent. (laughs) Not all of your desires will become the desires of people you love, like shoe shopping. That might not make it. That might not make it. But some of them will. And it's 100% true that the more time you spend with God, his desires will become yours. And again, there's mystery there. There's no mystery to God's character. He's always a good father. There's absolutely mystery to some of his actions. And that's what I'm wanting you to lean on today is his character. He's a good father, and you don't need to wonder about that. There's, again, that, that's crystal clear in the Bible. There's no mystery around who God is. There absolutely is mystery around how God works. And so we can wonder, well, how do my desires and his desires, how do those things interplay? But don't question whether he's a good father and he desires to give you or he delights in giving you the desires of your heart. You hear that? There's a difference. Don't question his character. It's crystal clear. You can wonder, and there's mystery around his actions and how he executes his will at times. But what I want you to hear today is that there's some things that are deep in you that are good and right, and that God wants to fulfill those things, and that in fulfilling those things, you'll also be fulfilling his purposes in the world. Sometimes we make a distinction Well, this is what I want, and this is what God wants. It's either or. It's either what I want or what he wants. And oftentimes, because he's a good father, it's both and. It's not either or. And that's hard for some of you because that feels selfish, or you feel like that makes you above God in some ways, and none of those things are true. He is sovereign 100%. He is gracious, and he is loving, and he is kind, and he's super, super smart. He's so wise, he's able to take your desires and his plans and bring those things together. Paul wanted to go to Rome. And God wanted Paul to go to Rome. And so both Paul is fulfilled and God's purposes are fulfilled in the same decision. And that is true for you. Maybe not every time, but more often than you realize What God wants to give you, or those deep desires you have, as he fulfills those, those also fulfill his plans and purposes in your life. And you don't need to think or be afraid that if you say yes to him and his plans, then that means the things that are in your heart all get thrown aside. Maybe some of them will, but not all of them. Again, because he's a good father, and that's what I want you taking away. You can trust him. You can trust his character. Are you willing to allow him? to guide you, and to direct you? Are you willing to put those deep desires that you have on the table and say, God, this is actually what I want? Some of you have never named those things before the Lord. And you may not even know them yourself because, again, it feels selfish to you or self-indulgent. But have you ever told the Lord, this is actually what I want? This is where I want to go to college. Have you told him, this is where I want to go? This is where I want to live. This is the job I want to have. Do you put any of those things out there? This is what I want for my children. This is the kind of relationship I want with my mom. Do you put any of those things out there? These are my deep desires, God. This is what I want. Ask him as he fulfills those. Some of those, again, they may be off the table. But more of them than not, 
He can fulfill those as he fulfills his purposes in your life. Second, last thing, responsiveness. That's what God is looking for from us, and that ties into this whole idea of desires. I'll, I'll tie that in at the end. God is looking for responsiveness, and that's what you see with the Jews, that they just weren't responsive to him. That was the issue. It's not that they were Jewish. It's not that it's, they, they, didn't, they couldn't hear what Paul was saying. Paul was in the exact same spot they were 25 years before. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was adamantly opposed to Christianity. He says about himself, I was obsessed, obsessed with persecuting Christians. I thought they were all heretics. I thought Jesus was a blasphemer who was rightly crucified. And he was dead and he was in the ground where he belonged. That's what I thought. If there were votes against Christians, I voted against them every time. I tried to make them blaspheme so I could then accuse them, so I could then convict them of that, which is a capital crime in Judaism. That's what he's saying. I was, I was zealous in my desire to squash out the church. And then I'm going to Damascus to round up some Christians. And Jesus speaks to me from heaven. Dead guys don't speak. And they don't, they don't call you by name. And so Paul, as zealously as he opposed Jesus, is able in that moment to repent. He's able to recognize that he was wrong. So even though he was zealously opposed to Jesus, his heart was still tender to the voice of God, if you can hear the distinction there. He was still able, even though he was running as hard and fast as he could this way, his heart was sensitive enough to the Lord that he could hear God say, hey, I want you to go this way. And he, he repented. He, he, he said, okay. His ears were open. His eyes were open. His heart was open. It's all the things that we see here in this section, him saying about the Jews, was not true of them. Their eyes weren't open. Their ears weren't open. Their hearts weren't open. And so when they have the truth, when Paul says, hey, let me tell you about Jesus, let me point to all the places in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 18, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, that said this is who he's going to be. It lines up perfectly with Jesus' life. Let me tell you, he rose from the dead, and you don't have to take my word for it. I've got over 500 witnesses that I can produce. You can call them, and they'll tell you. They saw him after he died. We all know he died. He died in Jerusalem very publicly. And we can, I can give you names of people who saw him afterwards. And they dig their heels in. They can't hear what he's saying. And so what God says, if that's how you want to be, then okay, that's how you're going to be. God doesn't force us to believe. He doesn't reach into our hearts and change our will so that we go from no to a yes. What he's looking for is acceptance. He's looking for us to, to willingly say yes. That's what he's looking for. He doesn't force anyone to. That stubbornness of heart that you see here, we don't, that's dangerous. We want to have hearts that are sensitive. Even those of you, most of you, again, have already said yes to Jesus. This can still, it can still creep in in our own hearts or we can become so set in our understanding or so set in the direction that we're going that we can't hear God say, hey, move in a new direction. I'm not talking about salvation at that point. It's just ongoing faithfulness and obedience. We can't hear what the Lord is saying to us. 
Our ears are, are closed to him. Our eyes don't see because we're running hard after the things that are important to us. Maybe with the best of intentions. You don't want that to happen. Again, this isn't a matter of, this isn't a salvation issue for most of you. It's about ongoing faithfulness and obedience. What God is looking for and continues to look for is responsiveness. Ultimately, what you see is if we're not responsive to him, he says, okay. You can see it with Pharaoh. You can go read that in Exodus. Several plagues. Pharaoh hardens his heart. Pharaoh hardens his heart. Pharaoh hardens his heart. Then like the fifth one, maybe the sixth one, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. All right, Pharaoh, if that's how you're going to be, then I'll just cooperate with you. If you're not willing to hear what Moses is saying, if you're not willing to respond to these miracles that you're seeing, these signs that you're seeing, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to force you to do that. I'm going to cooperate with you in resisting me. That's weird. But that's what God does. And the same thing's true in our own life. It's like if, if we're not... He's a potter. And wet clay is easy to mold and shape. That's being sensitive and tender to what he's saying. Once that stuff sets, you can't shape it with your hands anymore. Think of like a block of marble. You've got to use a hammer and a chisel on that. And you don't want to be that. You don't want to have a heart where God's got to use a hammer and a chisel to to mold and shape and turn you. You want to be tender and soft in his hands so that he can mold you and shape you with his hands. And that's what he's looking for. And again, he continues to look for is that responsiveness from us. So big idea. God's a good father. And you can trust him with the desires of your heart. Oftentimes, him fulfilling your desires fulfills his plans and purposes. Can you trust him with that? Second question, what about the places where your desires and his come into conflict? Can you trust him enough to say, you know what? I'm going to yield. I'm going to submit to you. That's a deeper level of trust than one. That first thing I shared, that requires some level of trust. This second thing, that's more. That's, that's, that's saying, you know what? I'll lay down my agenda for yours. I trust that the plans and purposes you have are better than mine, that the ideas you have for me are better than the ideas that I have for myself. Parents in the room, can you do that with your kids? Can you say, God, this is what I want for him or her, but ultimately I'll lay that down for what you want for him or her. That can be, that's a, there's a, a trust level there, deeper level of trust that you have to get to. In order to do that, there's this, this sensitivity to what he's saying, this receptivity, this tenderness of heart that says, all right, God, you can, you can steer the ship for me. You're Paul, and you're running hard in one direction, and in a moment, God can turn you around, and you're willing to say, you know what? I'm, I'm going to do this now. I'm going to move in this direction, even to say I was wrong. I was wrong about that. If the, if the Lord is, is showing you something new, does that make sense? Let's pray. So grab onto one of those three things and just ask just one. Again, that first issue or step one, if you want to call it that, I guess. Do you believe that God's a good father to you specifically? Some of you are super, super obedient. You get God as Lord. Some of you are so thankful. You get Jesus as Savior. 
Some of you kind of live in awe of God. You get him as creator. Some of you see him as a good father of other people. But for you, he's more like maybe a distant uncle. You see him every now and again. You're part of the family, but not super tight. Part of that, practically, have you shared your deep desires with him? Well, God knows everything. It's not the point. He's waiting to be invited to be invited in. He doesn't bully himself, bully his way in. He's waiting for you to invite him. So have you done that? God, this is what I really want. This is where I want to go to school. This is where I want to work. This is the career I want. This is the relationship. This is what I want my relationships to look like. Have you done that yet? If not, it may be because you truly don't know that he's a good father. Next, are you willing to say, God, the places where my desires conflict with yours, you win? Don't do that flippantly to sit in Sunday school. Honestly, in your heart, God, I trust that your, your plans are better than mine. Your, the future you have for me is better than the one I have for myself. This is what I want. Think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is what I want. I want you to take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. You've got to do the first step. God, these are my desires. But if it's not what's best, if it's not what you have, I'm going to, I'm going to yield to you. Can you do that this morning? If you can't, can you ask the Lord to begin to start to kind of create that willingness within you? God, I'm not there yet. Help me get to know you better. I want to spend more time with you so that your desires rub off on me. I can trust you more in these areas. Last one. God, I want to have a heart that's responsive to you. That's a big, that's a big prayer to pray. God, I want to be moved by you. I don't want ears that hear and don't understand. I don't want eyes that see and don't perceive. I definitely don't want a heart that's callous and doesn't respond. I want to be malleable in your hands. I don't want you to have to use a hammer and a chisel on me. So God, keep me tender and soft. Make me sensitive to the promptings of your spirit for small things, absolutely, but also for big things. I want to hear what you're saying. I give you freedom to redirect. So Holy Spirit, would you come now and you minister into the hearts of all of these students and adults I do pray that you would show yourself to us, God, as a good father. 
that we as your children would trust you with our dreams and our desires. That we would yield those things to you in the places where there's conflict. And that, God, that we would know your voice. Be sensitive to what you're saying. In Jesus' name, amen.